Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. We've been in Hebrews a while now. I know we have been, uh, but it's a little bit of a longer letter, uh, 13 chapters. And there's just a lot of things that we really need to take our time to look through as we study Hebrews. As we think about the book of Hebrews, pretty much up to this point, the author has been comparing the new covenant to the old, showing how Jesus is superior to everything, to everything about the old covenant. The author has spent a lot of time talking about the old priesthood of Israel, pointing out its insufficiencies and and how it's a, a shadow of the good things to come. Everything about the old covenant that God made with Moses and Israel and Mount Sinai pointed toward the new covenant that God would establish in Jesus Christ. We spent so much time talking about the Old Testament, looking at the old covenant, because it's really important that we understand how Christ is the fulfillment of all of this. He's the fulfillment of the old covenant. And now that he has come, the old covenant has gone away and the new covenant has been established in Christ. To give a poor movie analogy, uh, it's like, okay, you've watched the trailer, you've anticipated the release date of the movie, the movie comes out, you don't watch the trailer anymore, you go watch the movie, right? Was now that Christ has come, the, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant was like a trailer pointing toward the movie, pointing toward Christ who would actually come and fulfill the new covenant. And then, now that he has come, the old covenant, it's, it's done away with. It's gone because the new covenant is here. Speaking of movies earlier, my favorite movie, one of my favorite Marvel movies, is Avengers Infinity War. And when that came out, that was golly, several years ago. I was still working at McAllister's. And I was working at McAllister's the night it came out. And I'd been wanting to see it and was pretty annoyed because I had to work on opening night when I wanted to go. And I can't remember, did y'all go with us? I mean, so, yeah, so Sam, Alex, and Destin and I were planning to go, and, and I couldn't go at first because I was like, man, i got to work. And uh, <clears throat> I'd been wanting to watch this movie. I had to work closing shift, and I was like, man, I'm not going to be able to go and trying to make plans. Uh, the other manager on the shift with me, though, she came to me and she said, hey, I know you really want to go to the movie. I'll tell you what. I'll stay in close. You get out of here and go see the movie. I was like, yes. I was really excited. So I called Sam. He brought me a change of clothes. We piled up. Drove to Oxford or Tupelo? Tupelo. Drove to Tupelo and went and watched Infinity War on opening night. I was really excited about that. The opportunity to go to opening night came available to me. Everything happened that needed to happen in order for me to be able to go see Infinity War. I had a ticket. I had a change of clothes. I got to leave work early. Had a ride. Got to go. Everything worked out. It was great. I was not about to miss this. There's no way I was about to stay at McAllister's and close that shift while they went and saw Infinity War. That wasn't going to happen. I had the opportunity. I was going to go. Hebrews 10 verses 19 through 25 are kind of like that. It's kind of like that. The author sums up the confidence that believers have in Christ in verses 19 through 21 because of what he has done for us, the sacrifice for our sins. And he calls them, he strongly encourages them to do some things. So thinking about me with going to see Infinity War, because I had everything necessary in order to go see the movie, I didn't have to rely on the trailer. I didn't have to wait for enough. I wasn't waiting on anything else. I had the ticket. I had the way to go. I had everything I needed. All I had to do was get in the car and go. The same thing here. The author sums up what Christ has done. Christ has done everything necessary for the forgiveness of our sins. 
He's accomplished everything. And there are some things because of that that we need to do. So let's pray as we read God's word. And then let's look at these things uh, from this text. Lord, as we come to your word tonight, God, would you speak to us through your word? Would you help us to understand it? Would you remind us yet again just what it is you've done for us? May the death and the resurrection of Christ for the forgiveness of our sins never become so just uh, numb to us. May you continue to deepen our knowledge and understanding and love and appreciation for what you've done for us on the cross. And may we commit our lives fully to you, following after you, living for you, completely devoted to you for the rest of our lives. And Lord, we ask you bless this time as we read your word and study it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's read Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. There are four things. It's, it's a pretty easy structure. Sometimes when you read Scripture, you see a pretty easy structure. This is one of those texts that I want us to see four main things from this text. The first is summed up in verses 19 through 21. It is the confidence we have in Christ. Confidence in Christ. Verse 19 starts out, therefore, therefore. Therefore, remember in Scripture, anytime you see the word therefore, you need to see what it's there for, right? It's an easy thing. Every, anytime in Scripture you see the word therefore, you need to look. What is that there for? It refers to what the author what the author has previously discussed in the first 18 verses, what we looked at last week. Christ's sacrifice once for all. His one-time sacrifice that satisfied God's wrath against sin one time for all, for all sin. His sacrifice that was effective to actually save sinners. It wasn't a shadow pointing to something else. It was an actual sacrifice that actually saves. saves. And it also signifies a transition in thought, right? Moving from explanation to exhortation. And that's just a fancy word that means like a strong encouragement, kind of a call to action. So he's explained what Christ has done and now he's transitioning. Okay, now that you know what he's done, this is what you're to do, right? Because we don't just have a knowledge of God and go, okay, yeah, I'm smart. Yeah, I know these things. No, it is to lead us to transformation to actually do something, right? So therefore, we're seeing this transition of a call to action in these verses. So we need to pay attention because there are things that we need to do. We see, therefore, brothers, brothers, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence. So, so what he's saying in these verses, this doesn't just apply to anybody, right? This doesn't apply to anybody and everybody. There are specific people he's talking to, right? When we read scripture, it wasn't written to us. It wasn't just written to everybody or any. There, there, there are certain audiences. There are certain people that the authors of scripture wrote to. This author is writing right now to believers. How do we know that? Brothers, brothers, anytime you see that in the New Testament, pretty much every time it's referring to Christians. Therefore, brothers, since we, 
right? This, this inclusive language of, of Christians, right? So he's writing this to Christians. This section of verses refers to those who trust in Christ for salvation. So because of what Christ has done, those who trust in Christ are to do some things. All right, we're going to look at this in a little bit. So let's continue on. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places. Remember that Jewish mindset, right? You, you have the, the, ta- the temple. All right, there are three parts. You have the outer court, the, and you go in. That's where everybody could be. And you have the inner part of the sanctuary. That's where the priests would go and minister. Then you have in the very inside the most holy place. And who could go to the most holy place? The high priest. And how often could he go? Once a year. So the, only the high priest could go to the most holy place. And he could only do once a year. Right? But he went. And even when he went, it was in fear. Right? Because he was coming before God. He had to go and make sacrifices for his own sins. Then he would go and sacrifice for the people. And it was a scary thing. Because if he wasn't clean, he didn't do what he was supposed to do, he would die. And so, a little bit of, a little bit of fear there. But what does this verse say? This verse says, Therefore, brothers... Since we, speaking of all Christians, have confidence to enter. So this verse is saying that all believers can confidently enter into the most holy place. How is this possible? Look at the, verse, look at the end of verse 19. By the blood of Jesus. By the blood of Jesus. Jesus' once for all sacrifice was a perfect sacrifice that was acceptable to God. To forgive sinners and to make them righteous before God. And it is because of His sacrifice that we, that all believers, can confidently enter into God's presence. No guilt, no fear, no shame because God has accepted Jesus' sacrifice. And if you have put your faith in Him, that sacrifice applies to your life. It covers your sin. We've looked at verse 19. Continue on verse 20. By the new... In living way that He opened for us through the curtain that is through His flesh. The new and living way. New and living way. This is different from the old way. The old covenant, right? Because Jesus was establishing a new covenant through His blood. And it sounds a little odd. The new and living way. How did Jesus establish His new covenant? Through His what? Through His death. Through His death. Through dying. As a sacrifice for sin to pay the penalty that was due. So through his death, we have life. It's kind of a little oxymoron there. Through Christ's death, we have life. Through his flesh being torn. We see that the, at verse 20. Through his flesh being torn, through his death, the curtain. Remember what happened when Jesus was on the cross? When he, when he died, he cried out, my God, my God, why are you forsaken me? And he said, it's finished. The veil of the curtain, with the veil of the temple, the curtain that stood in front of the most holy place that the priest, that the high priest had to go through, that curtain was torn in two from top to bottom, showing that the barrier between people and God was destroyed. That was destroyed. It was direct access to God. Through how? Through Jesus, through his death. Right? The way, the new and living way was opened to us through the curtain. That is his body. Through his death, the curtain to the temple was torn. That old system was done away with. And it's through Jesus Christ that we can have access to God. So in effect, when Jesus' body was torn on the cross, the veil of the temple was torn. So we now have direct access to God through Jesus. But understand this too. 
Jesus doesn't merely show us the way to the Father, nor does He merely just provide us the way. He doesn't just say, here's how, here's how you get there, and here's what you need to do. No, so before John Malcolm was born, Avi and I took a little trip to Chattanooga. We went for a few days to Chattanooga. We stayed in a, a little tiny house. It was pretty cool, actually. A little bitty uh, house, and it was a neat little place in the middle of nowhere, honestly. It was down like a really strange, I can't remember the name that she left, the, the name of the road was like really weird too. But we went. And so I looked up the directions, saw the directions, whatever, plugged them in and went. And we got there, right? Dropped the pin so we would know where to go back and all that fun stuff. Jesus doesn't just drop a pin in heaven and then tell us how to get there. When we get there, get the access code so we can get in the gate. That's not, that's not how it works. That's exactly what happened when I went to Chattanooga with Ivy. But that's not how Jesus does it. What Jesus does is he has provided the way, he, he is the way, and He takes us with Him into the very presence of God. The person who I rented this tiny house from, they didn't come pick me up from New Albany, drive me to Chattanooga, let me in the house and say, hey, come in, I'm going to cook all your meals, I'll take care of you while you're here. They said, hey, here's it is, go, go find it, go get it. No, Jesus takes us with Him into the very presence of God. Let's look, I want you to write these verses down and go back and read them. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. I'll read them now just for you to review later. Even when we were dead, Ephesians 2, 5 and 6. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Hebrews 6, 20. Jesus, He's gone before us as our forerunner. A forerunner is someone who goes before us and makes a way for us to come in behind. He doesn't just pave the way and say, have fun. No, we, we go in behind him. Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 16 through 18. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. So what does Jesus do? He makes a way for us and he helps us, right? Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Hebrews chapter 4 verses 14 through 16. This is, this is similar to what we're looking at tonight. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. He's made the way to heaven. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What the author is doing in Hebrews chapter 10 verses 19 through 21 is he is summarizing the main points of the book of Hebrews. In verse 19, that that Jesus' sacrifice gives us access to God. And confidence to enter in. His sacrifice gives us access to God and confidence to enter in. Verse 20, He has established a new covenant that gives us life through His death. The new covenant in Jesus gives us life through His death. And then in verse 21, we see that Jesus is our high priest forever. He remains. He doesn't change out like the ones of the Levitical priesthood. He's our high priest forever who makes atonement for our sin. So this transition of, hey, everything we've talked about so far in Hebrews, all of this is what Christ has done. 
Verse 19, therefore, because of all what he's done, now there's some things you need to do, right? There are things we need to do. Three things we see that we're to do. And they all start with let us, let us, let us. The first thing is let us draw near with a clean heart. We see this in verse 22. Let us draw near with a clean heart. The phrase draw near is mentioned several times in Hebrews. Uh, we just read it a second ago, Hebrews 4, 16. Let us draw near to the throne of grace. In chapter 7, verse 25, uh, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God. In our text right here, chapter 10, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart. And we'll look at uh, probably in the next couple weeks, chapter 11, verse 6, whoever would draw near to God must believe He exists. So this, this idea of drawing near, coming before God, approaching God, Right? Christians are to draw near to God. But how do we do this? With a clean heart. Let us draw near with a true heart. With sincerity. With genuineness. Right? Not with hypocrisy, but with genuineness. A clean heart with full assurance. With full confidence of faith. Right? Because we can have confidence before God because of what Christ has done. And so when we come before God, when we approach God, we do so confidently. With confidence of our faith in Christ. Remember what precedes this exhortation is a reminder of what Christ has done, right? Verses 19 through 20. Remember what Christ has done. Therefore, draw, let us draw near to God confidently. Confidently. With a clean heart. Because of all of this, we are to come to God with a true and clean heart. And there's certainly some imagery here in this verse, right? Verse 22, let us draw near with a full, with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Remember the, the sprinkling of the blood that would be on the people to, to cover their sins and the washings that the priests had to do in the Old Covenant before they sacrificed for sins. It certainly got some Old Testament imagery here, right? We, we approach God with sincerity, with genuineness, with authenticity, right? With a clean heart and a conscience that has been inwardly cleansed by the blood of Christ. And let me say this. God's not a fool. God's not a fool. He knows every thought and intention of your heart. You can, you can fool your parents. You can fool me. You can't fool God. When you come to God for saving faith, He knows your intentions. He knows your heart. Every time you come to God, He knows why you're coming. He knows the motive behind why you're coming. In fact, God is the one who gives you the desire for Himself. We, we can try to act like we have a desire and come to God and like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm going to do this. Maybe try to work out a deal with God. Maybe we can sneak one past God. It's not how it works. The only reason we want to go to God is because God gives us the desire for himself before we even have it. By our sinful nature, we do not desire God. We don't desire the things that please him. We desire our sin. We desire our flesh. We want to do what we want to do. We don't want to submit our lives to the authority of Scripture. Our sinful nature says, do what you want. Be who you want to be. 
Be true to yourself. Be your best version of yourself. That's what our sinful nature says. And we come to that trying to maybe try to spiritualize or Christianize that or whatever you want to call it. And we can't fool God. You can't fool God. We come to God broken. We come to God asking Him to save us. And when He saves us, we come to Him with a clean heart that He gives us. Remember when David prayed in Psalm 51 after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba? He said, create in me a clean heart, O God. God is the one who creates in us a clean heart. And this is how we come to God, with clean heart. I've known many people who struggle with assurance of their salvation. And maybe you have before. Maybe you've struggled before with like, am I, am I really saved? I don't know. You, it's just something you battle with. And as I talk to people, I've, I've found one of two things. I found out two things, and it's usually they either have a weak understanding of what it means to be saved, and they don't know that they can be confident before God because Christ has cleansed them of their sin. That's one thing, that people just are just weak and they're immature in their faith. They've not grown enough. Or I've also talked with people, and it becomes pretty evident when talking with people that they've never truly come to Christ with a broken spirit. With this, with this felt need knowing that they are sinners. So they don't have a clean heart. And they, they, they try to fool God. They try to fool others. And they try to they come to Christ and they don't have a pure heart. They don't have true, genuine sincerity as they're trying to come before God. Maybe they're coming to God to try to get something out of it. To benefit themselves here. Whatever their sinful desires are. But they don't come to God really wanting God. They want everything else. They want to be successful in life. And they think God can make that happen. They want to marry somebody that's great or have a successful career and all these things that God will help me with, right? I just say a little prayer and God will help me do all these big and great things. But there's no sincerity. The people who find God are those who seek Him with their whole heart. With total genuineness. Those are the people who find God. The ones who are seeking God with their whole heart. Jeremiah 29, 11. You know this verse. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope in the future. As Israel was, he's saying, hey Israel, you're about to go to exile in Babylon for 70 years. Don't worry. I know the plans I have for you. Two verses later, Jeremiah 29, 13. It says, you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with your whole heart. That's the person who finds God. It's the person who seeks God with their whole heart. Not with an ulterior motive, but just because you want God. The washing with water. We, have, we come with God with a, with a true heart, with sincerity, with genuineness. But also we see this with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. And our bodies washed with pure water. I think that refers to two things. I think one refers to baptism. You know, this, this visual picture of being buried with Christ and raised a new life. But I also think it refers to sanctification. A process that the Holy Spirit works inside a believer to make us more like Christ. Right? Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33 talk about marriage and talk about how it is a representation of Christ in the church. So just a sidebar, as you're thinking about marriage, don't think, oh, he's cute, she's cute, they got a good job, they seem like a nice person. Marriage is a representation of Christ in the church. So when you're choosing a spouse, you need to find someone who is going to help you best represent Christ in the church. All right, that's, that's, that's free for the price of admission, right? But just when you, when you think about that, when you think about marriage, which 
will come soon. More soon than you think. Sooner than you think. Really. Think about someone who will help you represent Christ better. In that passage, verse 26 says that Christ gave himself up for the church that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. And so when Christ saves a person, the Holy Spirit begins the work of sanctification, making you more like Christ, cleaning you up. Christ has made you new. Now the Holy Spirit is doing this work of sanctification to conform you into the image of Christ. So we come to God sincerely with faith in Christ and with a clean heart, with faith. Secondly, we see let us hold fast to the confession of our hope. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope. What does it mean to hold fast? That's not a phrase we use. To hold fast. Anybody know? I'll just tell you. It means to stand firmly. To to stick to firmly. You're you're sticking with it. Right? You're not going to let it go. Well, we, we're not going to let go to the confession of our hope. Well, what is the confession of our hope? It is that Jesus Christ is Lord and Christ alone saves. Right? So we are called, in verse 23, to stick firmly to the gospel. To, to have assurance that Christ saves and to be sure of your salvation. And just, just you need to know this. In the Christian life, you're going to struggle. You're going to face some hardships. You're going to face some real difficulties. You, you've probably experienced that to some degree. And I promise it continues. You, you will be frustrated. You will be discouraged. There will be times where you are tempted to doubt. You may wonder if all this Christian stuff is true. And even if it is, is it really worth it? You're going to be faced with these realities in life. Should I really live my life completely committed to Christ? And if you find yourself like this, does that mean you're really not a Christian? Or does it, does it mean that, you know, you're just on the verge of losing your salvation because, you know, well, if I was a Christian, I wouldn't be doubting or I would think this or I would do this. This idea is what people call the perseverance of the saints. The true Christian who comes to God sincerely with a clean heart, having trusted Christ, will hold fast, will stick firmly to the gospel, and will have assurance of their salvation. doesn't mean you're not going to be tempted to doubt. doesn't mean you're not going to struggle with sin. But it does mean that you will cling to Christ and you will not let go. You will not be lost. But how can you be certain of this? How can you be certain that 20, 40 years from now, you've lived life and maybe you've experienced more discouragement and frustration than you thought. Maybe you've doubted more than you thought. How can you be sure that you know you're still saved? Look at the end of verse 23. We can know this, for he who promised is faithful. Our confidence isn't within ourselves. The assurance you have of salvation is not yourself. It is in the one who is faithful. The one who always keeps his promises. Jesus said in John 6, 37, All that the Father give me, gives me will come to me. That's a promise. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. We can have unshaken confidence in the confession of our hope, in the security of our salvation, because God is faithful and He will never abandon His children. So how how do we do this? How do we hold fast to the confession of our hope? By abiding in the Word of God. There's a saying that goes, get in the Word until the Word gets in you. Get in the Word until the Word gets in you. 
as we abide in Christ and he abides in us and he strengthens our confidence in him and his faithfulness. Right. We know God is faithful because his word proves that he is. But we won't know that if we're not in his word. So we study his word. We memorize his word. We commit his word to our lives so that we know God. We know his faithfulness and we can hold firmly to the hope we have in him. Lastly, this last exhortation, this last command calling we have is let us stir up one another in community. Let us stir up one another in community. If you haven't noticed through this text, the author never intended for any of what he has said to be done in isolation. Right? Let's look back at the text. Everything about what we've discussed tonight has been in the context of community. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, let us enter. Let us draw near. Let us hold fast. Let us consider how to stir up one another. This, this idea of meeting together. This, this all the, the Christian life is designed to be lived in community with other believers. Not in isolation. Verses 24 and 25 explain the local church's role in the life of the believer. God intends for Christians to be in regular community with other Christians where they are stirring up one another. They're provoking one another to love and good works. That is God's intent for you as a Christian is to be connected to a local church. God has placed you here at Hillcrest. And God intends for you to be active, be heavily involved in Hillcrest. If God calls you elsewhere someday, guess what? You find a local church, a healthy local church, and get plugged in because that is God's intention for your life. We need this to stir up one another to love and good works. This word used for stir up or provoke, it's a strong word. I I was looking up this in Greek. It's a strong word that means a sharp disagreement. It's the word used when Paul and John Mark split you know, and they had a little sharp disagreement and they split away for a while. And then they finally came back together in ministry. It's, it means to stimulate, to spur on, to, to irritate even. And it can be used negatively or positively. Here it's used positively. All right. Think about riding a horse, right? Riding a horse. You're riding a horse. You want your horse to go a little bit faster. What do you do? You know, you got your spurs on your, on your boots. You kick it, right? Horse goes faster, right? Well, you're not patting on the back. Hey, good job. Let's pick up the pace. No, it's a, it's a kind of like get with it. Hey, man, I know your potential, horse. Get with it. Is that right? Something like that. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Thank you, guys. Kind of, hey, get with it. I know your potential. You can go faster. This is what you need to do. This is what you're supposed to do. Let's go. Let's get there. That's the idea in the local church. That believers come together and go, hey, I know your potential. I see what God is doing in your life. I see what gifts God has given you. Use them for His glory. Go, you have, this, you have this ability, you have this desire. God is doing this in your life. We need each other to see that. We need each other to encourage one another in that to move forward. God has given us different gifts. Not everybody is the same. And that's a good thing. We have unity in Christ, but we're all different. We have different abilities. We have different friendships. We come from different backgrounds. We have different preferences. God uses all of that for His glory. We all need to encourage each other to persevere. Right? We need to be encouraged by other Christians. We just need to be encouraged in general. Right? 
You, you face discouragement in life and you just need to be encouraged, especially by other Christians and especially to continue to live for God, to pursue holiness, to follow after Him. We need encouragement because it gets easy, especially when you feel like you're alone and everybody else is doing this, but you're supposed to be doing this because God's called you to this and you get a little discouraged. Maybe you feel like you're missing out on some things. You can't be friends with those people because of how they're living and God has called you to live a holy life. And you're like, man, I'm discouraged. I don't know what to do. We need this encouragement to press on, persevere, to love others, to love God, to serve other people, to serve God. But guess what? We can't do that if we're alone. We can't do that if we're not together. The regular meeting of the local church should be one of the highest priorities of your life. And I want you to know that right now as teenagers, the regular gathering, the regular meeting of the local church, for us that is Sundays and Wednesdays, it should be one of the highest priorities of your life. I understand things come up, life happens, you get sick, something, a, a game gets canceled, gets rescheduled, like, like life happens, I get it, Right? You're not going to have perfect attendance. Nobody is. But you should be doing everything in your power to make sure that you are regularly meeting with the local church in which God's placed you. In your case, Hillcrest Baptist Church. When I was in high school, I joined a club team, club soccer team in Tupelo. All of our games were Saturdays and Sundays. I told Coach, hey, I can make Saturdays, but I can't make Sundays because of church. Kept practicing for a little while, and, and I was just like, you know what? It's really not worth it. So I quit the team. I had to make a decision. Hey, I'm going to give this up so I can be committed to the local church. Sometimes it comes to that, where you have to prioritize your commitment to Christ and His church, because that is what God intends for you. Because guess what? You know the last time I played soccer was? A really long time ago. That's, that's not my life. I love soccer. I went to the soccer game last night. Did a great job. They won, going to state. That's awesome. The priority of my life is to be in the local church, to invest my life in the church. I've watched something happen over the past five years since I've been serving here in this role that, that I just want to bring your attention to, that you may have seen, you may not. It is becoming easier and easier. Now, I'm speaking to you generally, just at your age and teenagers and people. It's becoming easier and easier for you to put anything over your commitment to the local church. Oh, I, I had this come up. I can't go to church. Well, this happened. I can't go to church. I've got too much homework. I've got practice. We've got a game. I've got this. I've got that. And it just piles up, right? Even homework. I mean, come on. 312. 312. Write that number down. 312. That is how many Sundays and Wednesdays. You have 312 Sundays, 312 Wednesdays that you have in youth. Over a six-year period. It seems like a lot. 312. It's a big number. 312. Over six years. Take out when we don't meet for Christmas, Thanksgiving, or holidays, things like that. You're under 300. So just say 300. Just for an easy, solid number. And we'll give an hour. 6.30 to 7.30. An hour on Sunday mornings. Just give that. You have an hour, right? You have 300. Consecutively, that's about 12 days. There are 168 hours a week. 
You have about 12 days, right? 12 days consecutively that you will be regularly meeting with the youth group. Say you've got, say you, you've just, life happens and you miss a Sunday a month, right? You're three out of four Sundays. That's pretty faithful, right? 75% of the time, three out of four Sundays, that's, that's, that's on the higher end. You've immediately dropped to single digit days. It's about nine days that you have, nine full days that you have to be with your youth group. And say life just happens, you get through busy seasons and you just come every other week, right? Life happens, you come every other week. Even, you can almost count on one hand the amount of time and hours of the day that you will spend with your youth group over a six-year period. If you come every other week, that is less time than it takes to watch Grey's Anatomy the whole season, the whole show. Put it in a little perspective. You can watch, it will take more time to watch Grey's Anatomy than time you would spend if you come every other week. So let that sink in a little bit. What's the point of me saying that? The local church, your your commitment to the local church should be one of the highest priorities in your life. And if you don't understand that now, you won't as an adult. Because life will get busy. You're going to get married, you'll have kids, and you'll just, I can't go. Think right up the road. Not, Not, I don't mean this in a bad way, right up the road. We got a lot of students out tonight that are practicing for the high school musical this weekend. There's, there's a mission with that, right? You want to have a really good, quality, solid, successful production. Yeah, it's great. It takes everybody being together, doing their part, working hard, being committed, being at practice to work together to achieve that goal, right? You can't do it if half people miss. You can't do it if you go once every other day and you skip a bunch of practices. It doesn't work like that. You've got to be there. You've got to be committed. You've got to work hard in order for that mission to be accomplished. God has given the local church a mission. It is to make disciples of all nations. It is to make His name known in all the earth. Why do we flip the mindset and think that we can just kind of halfway come to church? That God, oh God's sovereign, He'll get His mission done. He doesn't need me. He, he is sovereign. But He has also called us to be a part. We need each other. If we're not committed to the local church, how, how do we think this is going to happen? It's a symbiotic relationship. I mean, it's a mutual relationship, which we all are different people, different backgrounds, different abilities that God uses to form a body of people, a unique group of people for himself to make his glory known on the earth. And you and I must be committed to his mission. If we really understand verses chapter 10, verses 1 through 18, understanding what he has done for us then being committed to the local church should just come naturally. We should want to be committed. Christ has made a way for me to have access to Him. People don't know that. Let's, how, do we, how do we get that message out? God has established the local church so that we can do that. The local ch- you, you need the local church in your life. And the local church needs you. Don't, don't get in this mindset of, of a consumeristic mindset. Of, I'll just come, try to get stuff. If I miss, you know, it's okay. I'll try to get you're going to miss. Life happens. I get that. But you should make every effort to be here as much as you possibly can. You're missed when you're not here. It affects the body. If I didn't have my right arm, I would miss my right arm. There are certain things that I would not be able to do. When you're not here, the, the whole body can't, can't function as it should. 
Right? Life is a mist. It'll go by so quickly. What are you going to do with your life? Understanding what Christ has done for you, what are you going to do? What are you going to do with your life? We understand in verse 25 that we are to not neglect meeting together because the day is coming when Christ will return. And we anticipate this day. We long for it. We look forward to it. And so we meet together to encourage each other. Continue on in the faith. Press on. Keep your focus on Christ. He's coming back. We need that encouragement. We need one another. We need to be strengthening each other. And as we grow in our faith in God, our commitment to the local church will grow. Grow stronger. It certainly shouldn't be weak or stagnant. So as we close, I just want you to understand this. Christ has given you everything you need. He's given you new life. He's placed a calling on your life. And the author of Hebrews has told us how we're to respond to Christ's work. Faith, hope, and love. This, this triad. Faith in Christ's work on the cross for sin. Giving us access to God. Hope that we are forever secure in Christ. And love. Love for the fellowship of believers. Love for the local church. Let us, let us, let us commit ourselves to these. Let's pray. Father God, as we just look at this text and think about your word, God, it is so evident what you've done. It is so clear, so plain, so simple. We can understand it. And God, we see very clearly things that you've called us to do. You've called us to come to you confidently with a clean heart. You called us to stand firm, to hold tightly onto the confession. And God, we do all of this by committing ourselves to the local church. So God, help these teenagers, help these students to understand right now that they need to prioritize the local church. Even those that are not here, help them to understand that the high, one of the highest priorities of their life needs to be the local church. You've given this to us as a regular means of grace where we can meet together to strengthen each other and encourage each other in Christ. To spur us on to love, to good works. God, we need each other. And you've created the church as a beautiful way for that to happen. And so God, may we be found faithful. And may you be honored and glorified. And may your mission be advanced throughout the world through us as a, as a church universal, all over, believers everywhere, but also, God, through us right here at Hillcrest. Would you bless us? Would you lead us as we go forth? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.